This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Slowmag, helping your daughter adjust her window AC unit, getting the Christmas lights down. These are feats of middle age brought to you by Slowmag. Slowmag is magnesium chloride plus calcium for proper muscle function. Visit slowmag.com slash manliness for more information. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you think of wartime prison escapes, what comes to mind? Well, probably the breakouts attempted by prisoners of war during World War II, thanks to the movie The Great Escape. But the escapees of World War II learned many of the tricks of the trade from their pioneering predecessors who honed their courageous craft during the First World War. My guest today has written a book about their audacious exploits. His name is Neil Bascom, and his book is The Escape Artist, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison break of the Great War. Today on the show, Neil describes what conditions were like for British people. POWs during World War One and why prisoners wanted to escape the German camps even when they were relatively comfortable. We also discussed Germany's most infamous POW camp, which was essentially a landlocked Alcatraz designed to hold the most escape-prone prisoners. While it was believed to be impossible to escape, Neil describes how the prisoners hatched an elaborate breakout plan anyway and made a 175-yard tunnel towards freedom. We enter a discussion with what Neil took away from the heroic exploits of these men. You're really going to enjoy this look at a fascinating slice of history. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash escape. Escape artist. Neil Bascom, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. So we had you on about a year ago to talk about your book, The Perfect Mile, which was about Roger Bannister and John Lindy and Wes Santee racing to be the first man to run a sub four-minute mile. It was kind of, it was kind of a, we timed it just right. I mean, this is not, but like Roger Bannister died a few <laughs> months after. I don't want to say like we timed, but like it was, it was a great time. Like people got to learn about Bannister. It was kind of synced up, which was, which was nice. People learned more about his legacy. Exactly. You got a yeah. new book out though, called The Escape Artist, a band of daredevil pilots and the greatest prison break of the Great War. And for those of you who don't know, the Great War is World War One. This this book was a fun read. It, it read. It was an action adventure story. There was comedy, suspense. It had it all. Before we get into the details of it, how did you find out about this ginormous prison break that happened from this POW camp in Germany that was pretty much impossible to escape from? Because I never heard of this story. Well, I, I've always I've always wanted to write an escape story. It's just the the escape from Alcatraz was one of my favorite movies uh, growing up, and the sort of you know escapades that go into it, and and the planning and the the, the disguises and everything was just fascinating to me as a as a teenage boy. And so I always wanted to write one of these stories, but I but I was searching for the right one, and and. An editor of mine wanted me to write about the Stalag Luft uh, escape, the great escape of World War II, but that ground had been fairly well tread. And so I was looking for something else, and I, I finally ended up reading this book about uh, MI9, which was the World War II uh, escape and invasion service of the British. And in, in that book, they note this, this escape that happened in the previous war, in World War I, at a place called Holtzminden. And it turns out that those people who executed that escape became the, the teachers and the professors of MI9. And that was the sort of hook that 
that grabbed me. I wanted to learn about this original escape. And the further I plumbed into it, uh, it just turned out to be an, an amazing story. Yeah, so you mentioned The Great Escape. I'm sure a lot of people have seen the movie with Steve McQueen jumping over the fence on the motorcycle, looking cool. Um, but as Very I, cool. Right. And as I was reading this book, I mean, I was like, I'm reading the prequel of The Great Escape. Like, it, it, it almost, the way they did it, and we'll talk about how they did it, like, it, it basically set the standard of how these guys in World War II were pr- planning prison escapes. Yeah, I mean, the, the escape in Holtzman was really the roadmap for the great escape that we all know of. All right. And so what's great about this story, too, is that not only is the, the escape itself just fun, and there's so many interesting things about it, but you use it as a backdrop to explore other facets of World War I that a lot of people aren't familiar with. For example, I mean, the, the subtitle, it's, you know, the Daredevil Pilots and the Greatest Prison Break. World War I was the, the first war where aviation played a role. I mean, what, I mean, by this time, planes weren't that old, 10 years, maybe. What were militaries doing with planes that they had during the first war? Yeah, I mean, the, the planes at this point in time were essentially made up of wood wire and some canvas. They were not terribly safe. They were constantly plummeting from the sky. Engines were ceasing up. And the generals in charge really didn't think that that they would be terribly useful. I mean, they called them a, one general called it a useless and expensive fad. Another thought that, that they'd maybe need one or two planes, but that was about it. But it quickly, they began to find that they were very useful in reconnaissance and artillery observation, not to mention bombing German targets deep behind the lines. How did they do the bombing? Because they, I guess they had, they had to develop the technology for, you know, how do you drop a bomb from the air? Yeah, I mean, originally, again, just to show you how antiquated these were, you know, air-to-air combat was done with rifles initially. Bombs were dropped straight from the cockpit. And it wasn't for a while during the war that they began using, you know, dropping them out of the fuselage. It took a while. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you talk about too, like they'd have grenades and just... <laughs> exactly. Throw, throw and hurl the them over the side of the cockpit. It was right. rather ridiculous. And so the British Air Force, I mean, what was the state of the British Air Force at this time compared to the German? Did one have superior air power over the other? I mean, generally the Royal Flying Corps, the British end of things, and then the German Air Force, they were trading places throughout the course of the war. They were constantly adapting technology. They were building faster planes with more firepower and also training their pilots better. So you find that at the beginning of the war, the Germans were stronger, but you know, as 1950 uh, came along, the British started to sort of gain momentum and then back again, the Germans sort of taking over things in, in late 1916, where a lot of these pilots that I feature in the story really come to be captured by the expense of the, the German flying squadrons that just overwhelmed them. Well, so yeah, as soon as the, the, they found out that these airplanes have a role, they had to start ramping up production of the airplanes, but they had to put pilots in there and there weren't a lot of pilots at the time. So how did they, they man these airplanes they were building? Did they just kind of like, hey, you want to be a pilot? Here's two hours in the air. Okay, you're a pilot. How, what was that like? Well, the original pilots of the Royal Air Force were, were essentially amateurs, people who owned their own planes, who you know showed up with them and said, you know, I'm willing to fight for my country. But of course, they need more and more pilots as more and more of them are shot down. And so they initially started to recruit them mostly from this sort of Harrow, Eton, Oxford, Cambridge sort of elite 
people who, as my subtitle says, were daredevils, but people who, you know, rode motorcycles fast. It was rather a ridiculous sort of training recruitment process. You know, they would ask potential pilots who their favorite poet was. Do they like solitude? Was Kipling or Stevenson a better poet? It was... Uh, what, what was the right answer to that question? <laughs> yes, it was Kipling, okay, actually, and Shelley, just so you know, uh, over Meredith. Um, they liked uh, football players over pianists. Again, it was rather ridiculous recruitment process, but over time they found who exactly were the best pilots. And their training methods were both extremely dangerous. Half of the pilots were, were dying over the course of uh, you know the short training that they received before they were finally sent into mainland Europe to, to fight. So yeah, this was a, a dangerous job. It attracted a certain type of person. Um, and the, the other issue with these things is that you're behind enemy lines typically because you're doing reconnaissance, you're doing bombing runs. So you're more likely probably to be taken prisoner. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, uh, you know, in 1916 where, where many of these pilots were captured, the, the, the lifespan in the air was 17 minutes long over enemy lines. So you were liable to be shot down in in less than a quarter of an hour and many people died and many of the pilots were actually captured. And just to give you an idea of sort of how things were at the time, some of the pilots asked for, for parachutes because that seemed like a good idea. And their bosses in the Air Force said, well, we want you to be able to, to uh, be motivated to, to die, to fight to the very last. And so they were not given them. Yeah. And the other thing they had to do, too, you talk about is they would, as soon as they crash landed, if that's what they could do, they were ordered to destroy the planes as quickly as possible so the Germans couldn't uh, learn about their technology. Exactly. And so, you know, their initial instinct, of course, was to run for the hills, but they had to destroy these planes. And by the time that happened, they were generally surrounded. And the fact of the matter was, is that they were given absolutely no training in what to do if they were uh, shot down behind enemy lines, nor were they provisioned in a way that they could escape and evade. So during World War One, they these guys were learning on the fly, and this would later serve soldiers in subsequent wars. Absolutely. Right. Well, I mean, this is another interesting concept that a lot of people don't realize is this idea of prison, being a prisoner of war, taking prisoners of war was a relatively new concept. You know, for most of human history, the, you know, the rule of the law of war was, you know, if you conquered an army, you either killed them or enslaved them. Now, I think the first time they actually started using prisoners of war on mass scale was during the Boer War. Correct. You, you saw like Winston Churchill was, you know, we did a podcast with Candace Millard about Winston Churchill's experience in, as a prisoner of war. But now we see even at even more mass scale during World War One. Uh, I mean, what? What does what caused the the nations to decide we're we're gonna we're not just gonna kill people when we take them capture we're not gonna enslave them but we're just gonna we're gonna put them up in a camp how did the nations agree on that well it was a long time coming and there was a lot of brutality and a lot of death prior to that I think probably one of the sort of more grisly stories um, that you find is this Byzantine emperor who captured about fourteen thousand prisoners he had all but a hundred of them blinded, and he left the, the last hundred uh, blind and only one eye so they could march back to their hometown. You find that, you know, over the course of, of time, in the 17th century, some Dutch legal theorists came up with this idea that maybe we should have rules and laws about killing an enemy on the field. 
And then you find in the age of reason that prisoners were considered, okay, these are, these are just men. We don't have the, the right to take their lives. And so again, over time, Abraham Lincoln codified in the Army Field Manual what to do with prisoners of war. There were the Hogg Conventions in 1899 and 1907 that also tried to, quote unquote, civilize war. And that really led you to World War One, where there were rules in place and, and uh, obligations for countries to humanely treat the prisoners that they took. But they had no idea what they were going to face in World War One. This, this industrial warfare where you have millions of soldiers pitted against each other. And so the consequence of that is, of course, you have millions of prisoners. And so you find that Germany and the Allies were overwhelmed with, with the vast populations of people that they were taking in and having to, 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 to house and feed uh, and control. And this led to a lot of problems, uh, both in terms of disease, but also in terms of just ill treatment. Yeah. I mean, what, what was a typical prisoner of war camp like, let's say in Germany? Because I think when most people think POW, they think, I don't know, I always imagine the Vietnam War, or, you know, John McCain or John, you know, Stockdale, you know, in solitary confinement in, in iron shackles. I mean, the way you describe in the book, it was bad. I'm not going to like downplay how it, it's not great to be a prisoner of war, but it wasn't like it wasn't like Viet like the the what was that the, the the prisoner of war in Vietnam the Hanoi Hilton yeah Hanoi right? Hilton right I mean it, it, it it's a great question it's all, it, it was largely a question of who you were more than anything else if you were an enlisted soldier you were essentially put into what was a, a tent city in Germany where there could be 30,000, 40,000 prisoners held within a, a certain confinement. And these prisoners were largely used as, as workers, uh, put in Arbeitskommandos to dig mines, to haul uh, equipment, and do all other kinds of works that, that the Germans couldn't do themselves because most of their people were up on the front. And then you sort of separate that, of course, from the officers, which was a very different world. In some ways, I was, in, in many ways, I was surprised at how, quote unquote, cushy life could be for an officer who was imprisoned. I mean, they were, they were put in largely into uh, barracks of former officers of the German army. They were given uh, orderlies to attend to their meals. They were allowed even what was called to walk on parole, which was they could sign a card saying, I vow not to escape. And they could walk outside the prison walls and on their gentlemanly code, not escape. That is not to say, again, that life was cushy. And it largely, again, depended on who the commandant was and what district uh, they were in in Germany. Some were in places where they were well-treated and in others, particularly in the case of, of this story of Holtzman, and they were put into place and commanded by a man named Carl Niemeyer, who was just an absolute tyrant and made their lives uh, a hell. Yeah, we'll get to, to Niemeyer here because he was a character. But this distinction between officers and just regular enlisted soldiers also played a role in who tried to escape from these prisons. What would happen if, say, just a regular enlisted soldier tried to escape from one of these German prisoners uh, prisoner camps compared to, say, if an officer escaped? Well, if an enlisted soldier tried to escape, he was either shot while trying to escape 
or he was placed back into a, an Arbeitz commando that was particularly grueling. So a salt mine or some other sort of heavy labor place where the chances of dying from that were, were very high. So it was, uh, you know, World War II and, and the Nazis, um, they were obviously very brutal to their prisoners. But there was some, you know, predecessor to that in, in Germany during World War One. All right. So enlisted soldiers shot or in put or put back in worse conditions. They got recaptured. What would happen if, say, a, an officer escaped and got recaptured? Was same fate or was he treated better? No, very, very different fate. I mean, some of them were, of course, shot while trying to escape. But the large preponderance of them were placed back and in, in often into the same camps that they escaped from, put into isolation. And there were even rules between Germany and Britain about how long you could put these officers into isolation. Was it two weeks at a certain point in time? It was a couple months at another point in time. So again, the threat of death uh, was not nearly as high as if you were an enlisted soldier, which, of course, if you look at the percentages, many more officers tried to escape than enlisted soldiers. Right. And a lot of these officers you talk about in the book, they were, they, they made several escape attempts. Remind me this, you know, again, of the Steve McQueen character in The Great Escape, keeps on trying to escape, gets thrown back <laughs> into the clinker, gets out, tries to make another escape. I mean, these guys were doing it. So, I mean, why, why were they? Was it because they wanted their personal freedom or did they feel like it was their duty as an officer to sort of muck things up for the Germans. So, you know, they're, they're escaping contributed to the war effort. Yeah. I think, you know, you find over the course of, of reading these letters that these prisoners wrote and, and their memoirs subsequent to, to their escape, the motivations were pretty much all over the place. Many of them, of course, just wanted to get back into the fight. They wanted to get back to uh, England or their country and, and get back into the fray. Others of them considered, okay, they might not be able to escape, but every man, every expense that the Germans have to expend on keeping prisoners was was one less resource that they had to, to, to put into the war. And a lot of it was just this sheer sense of, of shame that they had, which, which was unwarranted, these prisoners had of, of being captured. I mean, the ethos at the time was is that you shouldn't be captured. And so there was a sense that they had some, somehow not done the proper thing. And so they wanted to sort of right there that wrong by escaping. Right. That sense of British gentlemanly honor was driving exactly. them. Exactly. Uh, what was the most common, we'll talk about you know, the tunneling. Tunneling was a, a popular approach, but besides tunneling, how else, what was the most common way to escape from these POW camps during World War One? Well, they, they tried everything under the sun. I mean, the, the, the level of hijinks that went into some of these escapes is, 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 is absolutely comic. I mean, some tried to, to build an airplane at the top of their barracks. Others tried to, to uh, erect a, a balloon to carry them over the walls. Many tried to do the sort of standard uh, cutting through the fence or jumping the fences. Others tried to disguise themselves as German officers and just walk right through the front gate. Others tried to hide themselves in in the garbage bins that were hauled out beyond the walls. I mean, if it could be thought of, these prisoners thought of it and attempted it. Some buried themselves under the ground with a little reed to breathe in, waiting for the guards to go to sleep, and then 
and then trying to escape that way. I mean, it was it was comic many times, heartbreaking in others. Yeah, you mentioned a few cases where they got like just within just a few miles of the, I guess the hall, the it's Holland, right, was where they were off yes. trying to go. Few miles, and right there they got captured. <laughs> they had to go all the way back, and it was just like, oh man, I, I can't imagine how that felt. Well, that was the thing. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the thing was, it was one uh, one part to escape the camp, to get beyond the wall. It was quite another. Many, Most of these places were, were hundreds of miles from the Dutch border where they could find freedom. So not only did they have to escape the prison, but then they had to make their way through enemy-occupied territory to reach the border. And again, like you said, I mean, they uh, quite a few of them got within a stone's throw to the border and, and we're not. Yeah. That's the, the, the thing I saw noticed as I reading this, that they got really good at escaping. They could get out. They were masters at that, but it was evading was the hardest. They, and like you said, they, they, they received no training on how to evade the enemy behind enemy lines. So they were just making this stuff up as they went. No, they were. I mean, they had to, you know, make their own compasses. <laughs> they had no maps about uh, where, uh, where they needed to go, how to avoid particular military installations. And the fact of the matter was that the Germans employed almost the whole population to be on the lookout for escaped prisoners. So you find that many instances, POWs who had escaped are, are nabbed or, or spotted by school children and, uh, and rounded up. So uh, there's these officers always trying to escape for different reasons. The really brazen ones and the bold ones and the ones that got really good at it s- seem to all end up in this one POW camp called Holzminden. Is that how you pronounce it? Holzminden. Holzminden. Tell us about this camp and why was it so hard to escape from? Okay, so you have all these prisoners, right? And you know the, the, the large majority of prisoners, of course, didn't try to escape. You only had this sort of select few who were trying again and again and again to break out. And as you said, many of them were successful and then napped at the border. So at a certain point, the Germans decide we need to do something about these, these escape fiends, as they call them, these people who keep trying and trying and trying. We need to all put them all into one place. We need to make sure that that place is heavily fortified, heavily overseen by security, and make sure that they never escape. And so they come up with this place called Holtzminden, which was south of Hanover, and was formerly an infantry barracks that they then surrounded by this almost like a Russian nesting doll with a stone wall. And then inside that, a high fence. And inside that, a no man's land. And inside that, another fence. And so it was seemingly, as, as, as I call it, a kind of landlocked Alcatraz. And they decided in the fall of 1916 that all these troublemakers should all be placed in this single prison and that they should be overseen by a particularly cruel commandant. Yeah, so tell us about this guy, because he's interesting. He's German, but he has an American connection. Yeah, his name is Carl Niemeyer, and I mean, he's he was, I, I guess the best way I describe him, he was a, a bully of the, of the first order. I mean, he had this terribly rash temper. He was thin-skinned. The, the prisoners called him everything from a cad to a bloated, pompous, crawling individual to a cheat, to the personification of hate. And his background was sort of very foggy. He served in the military, Prussian soldier. He then moved in one story to Milwaukee, 
served as a bartender. In another story, he lived in New York and, and, and made billiard tables. People quite, weren't quite sure what his background was, but he did speak English. He spoke it to uh, a certain extent, although he, he mauled the language continuously, which was both an object of, of derision by the prisoners was also a hilarity. And he found himself uh, in World War I back in Germany, and he, with his twin brother, Heinrich, uh, overseeing camps, prisoner war camps in Germany. And how did he treat these guys? I mean, obviously, they were, these guys were put in a camp that was very hard to escape from. And what would he do to officers once they got recaptured? Would he do the typical two weeks of solitary confinement, or would he punish them even more harsh? Well, he would harangue them. He would uh, strip them of their clothes. He would put them in isolation. And isolation, by the way, was not something that, that you, you necessarily wanted to be placed in. I mean, you could be put in a sort of underground small cell with no exercise without seeing anybody for weeks and months on end and go mad. And many of the prisoners uh, went absolutely delirious in in isolation. So for the most part, he just abused and and put these prisoners in in isolation. And on some rare uh, instances, like the man that that uh, I called the sort of the, the British Houdini, who was eventually escaped from 12 camps before he got into the hands of Niemeyer and it was eventually uh, shot in the back and stabbed by bayonets. So Niemeyer was no, was not against violence by any means. We're going to take a quick break for you, word from our sponsors. Indochino is the world's most exciting menswear company. They make suits and shirts to your exact measurements for an unparalleled fit and comfort, all available in a wide selection of high quality fabrics and colors with the option to personalize details like your lapel, lining, pockets, buttons, and writing your own monogram inside the jacket. I've done this, got a navy blue suit from Indochino. Really great. It's fun to customize however you want your suit to look. You follow their measuring guide, you measure yourself or get someone to help you with the measuring. And in four weeks, I had a made to measure navy blue suit sent to my door. Indochino does more than suits though. They're expanding into casual clothing with made to measure chinos. These will quickly become your go-to pant, pairing easily with anything from a suit jacket to a sweater. They're perfect for any time of year or any occasion, from boardroom meetings to Sunday brunches. Available for an introductory price of $79. Better yet, this week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $359 at Indochino.com. That's about the price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. Just go to Indochino.com and enter code MANLINESS at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit, plus shipping is free. Again, that's Indochino.com promo code MANLINESS to get any premium suit for just $359 and free shipping. Also by ZipRecruiter. There are job sites that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through or make you wait for the right candidates to apply to your job. That's not smart. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter com slash manliness to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes, no more waiting for the right candidates to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the US. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. If you'd like to try ZipRecruiter, so if you're a hiring manager, you're at a corporation, or you're a small business owner looking for someone to hire, you can try this for free. Yes, that's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness to get a free trial. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. One more time. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. And he'd often punish the entire camp whenever there was an escape made, uh, you know, know, preventing them from exercising, uh, stopping mail, things like that. 
locking them in the barracks. Um, and then that kind of camp-wide punishment, that wholesale punishment was against the the Hague Conventions that purportedly the Germans subscribed to. Yeah. And I mean, and these officers, these British officers, they would complain about it, but nothing happened. Yeah. I mean, letters were snuck out. Prisoners who, who made it to Holland and back to England and reported about what was happening at Holtzminden uh, to the war office. They knew about it, but there was really nothing they could do. They could you know, do the same to German uh, prisoners, but that really wasn't going to happen. All right. So what's kind of funny is they, they put the, the mo- these escape fiends all in the same prison thinking, oh, you know, this is a really hard prison to escape from. But actually, they kind of backfired on them because you got all these guys who are really good at escaping together in the same camp where they could mastermind together to come up with the ultimate escape. So tell us about some of the, the men or these escape artists, as you call them, that got placed in Holtzminden? So you're exactly right. I mean, Holtzminden became what what I called an escape university. So you have all these prisoners who escaped in various different ways, who had learned different methods, and you put them all into one place and they just feed off each other and learn from each other. So if you want to know how to make a a secret hiding spot, you've got someone who's an expert in that. You want to make a makeshift compass there's someone to do that. If you want to know how to smuggle in supplies or tailor a German uniform or pick a lock or engineer some elaborate construction, there is someone at hand at Holtzman and who had done it before, who had been trained in, in this way. And so you have this just collective of people. Most of them were, were pilots. They were all officers. One of, uh, one of my favorites was, the, was a Canadian lieutenant named William Kokuhan who was six feet, six inches tall and went by the nickname Shorty because when he was captured by the Germans, they asked, are all you Canadians so tall? And he said, well, they call me Shorty. And this was just the sort of nature of these guys. Um, Another of them was a man named David Gray, who was an army sapper, who was this sort of stiff military guy, didn't like to get his, his, his uniform dirty but became a a, a very good uh, aggressive pilot and was one of the sort of leaders of this new plot to escape from Holtzminden. And you also had the guy that I was really intrigued by, uh, Bennett, I think. It was He was the poet. Well, you have Harvey, who was a, a poet and, and one of the sort of great war poets. And then you also have William Bennett, who was actually a, a naval observer who was an expert in, in hiding catches and, and, and all the like. So there was, I mean, there were just an absolutely range of people, officers who like to dress up and drag and escape. <laughs> just, I mean, you just have the gamut. Well, and then you also have the Pink Toes, who were this group of, of officers who were expert tunnelers. And they were called Pink Toes because they were, their, their feet were constantly uh, soaked in, in water. And so they became known as the Pink Toes. So all these guys get together. Uh, they've made different escape attempts, attempts while they were there, but then they decided to do this tunnel which was, it was a long, long tunnel. How did, how, did they, how did they all get together and agree that this was going to be the thing that would allow them to escape? What was, what was better about this escape plan than the other plans? So I think, you know, the, the, the first reason they needed to, you know, as soon as these guys get into a camp, David Gray or, or Shorty or uh, Bennett, they, they survey it. They, they look around and try to figure out what are, the, what are the weak spots in the security of this place. And Holtzminden, after weeks of, of such surveillance, they couldn't figure out any way to get out of there. 
And so the idea of of a tunnel of actually going underneath the ground seemed like really the only way that they could they could manage it. The other part, the other reason that that a tunnel was so attractive was the reason that so many of these men were there is because their typical escape, whether cutting through a fence or going through the front gate uh, in a rush or picking a lock, is the people, the commandant and the officers overseeing them know immediately that they've escaped. And so a manhunt is immediately dispatched and, and typically they're rounded up within less than a few hours. But if you build a tunnel and you escape at night, you have a, a head start, 12 hours, potentially, even six hours, where you can get away into the countryside and, and, and at least have a fighting chance of reaching the border. And so the fact that Holtzman was otherwise impossible to escape from and B, the fact that a tunnel allowed them to give a head start was a sort of combining factors that that made it so attractive. And how how long of a tunnel do they have to dig? Well, it seemed like a great idea at the beginning because they thought that it only needed to be 15 yards long. They thought that all they needed to do was go from the basement of one of the barracks underneath the wall, which was quite uh, close, and then up out of the out of the hole and then off they go. But the problem was just about the same time they finished that 15 yards, the, the Commandant Niemeyer put a, put a guard almost on the exact spot that they planned on emerging from. And so it then became a situation where the only way to use that tunnel was to go 150 yards to a field where they could emerge unseen and, and get away. All right, so a 165 yard tunnel, basically. Correct. That's okay. That's that's crazy because I, I played football in high school. A hundred yards <laughs> is really long. I've crawled, you know, on my hands and feet, bear crawled a hundred yards, and that was terrible. I can't imagine picking your way. Like, what did they? I mean, how did they do this without getting detected? Like, how did they not make any noise? What did they use for tools? How did they keep the thing supported? Like, how did they know how to build a tunnel? I mean, it was it was it was absolutely horrifying. The situation that that they faced while building this tunnel. And I remember even writing it and thinking to myself, God, I could never have done this. I mean, essentially you have them uh, going into this tunnel, digging through the dirt with spoons, the end of a bed stand. And again, they're not building this a tunnel as you imagine, probably imagine a tunnel where you can stand up and walk through it or even crawl on your hands and knees. I mean, you literally, it was so small that you could, you could, barely lie flat without your back touching the top of the tunnel and your elbows touching the sides. So they were essentially just uh, creating this as small burrow as they could because the amount of excavations of dirt and and stone, uh, they couldn't hide. Plus it would just take longer. So you have these these men, they, they go in, they're digging away, they haul supply, haul dirt out with a sack and they continue onward. And the deeper they get, the, the, the staler and the less oxygen the air has, so then they have to create a, a bellows or, or feeding air into the system. And it could collapse at any moment. There was dirt constantly falling in your face and down your neck. And at any moment, you could basically be interred and, and killed. And it was for particularly for one of the men, Casper Kennard, who was the pilot, you know, he was a claustrophobe. He hated confined spaces. And yet he's down there. He wants to escape so badly. He's down in this dark, dank tunnel, illuminated by a single candle, uh, hacking away at the ground ahead of him. Yeah, I got claustrophobia 
just reading it. Yeah, it, that wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good. <laughs> I, and did besides the officers, did other people in the camp know that there was a tunnel? Like, was it an open secret? It was. I, I wouldn't call it quite an open secret as much as it was. It was something that you know the officers. There was this small cabal of, of men. So there was, there was this core group of twelve officers, uh, and the head of the tunnel, David Gray, who was called the father of the tunnel, wanted to keep it small. But it, but the fact was is that he needed some of the orderlies, some of the enlisted men to help them, not only because they needed supplies, but because the entrance to the tunnel was actually in the orderlies' quarters underneath their quarters in the basement. So they needed uniforms from them. So a few of them knew. And then as you get further along the story and, and months pass, more and more people are brought in because more and more supplies and information and, and people were needed to be in and on the know. So at the end of the day, you had like 50 people who actually knew about the tunnel out of a group of about 600 officers. Yeah. And even German guards knew about it. Even some of the German guards were uh, at least knew something was in the works. They had bribed some of the officers, in fact, one to provide them with acid to, to, to melt the iron rod foundation. So as we mentioned earlier, escaping was the easy part. What I think was different from previous escape attempts that these guys really thought hard about evading this time. So what were their plans to evade their captors being recaptured again after they escaped? Yeah, I mean, I think this is what made this what I, you know, the, the greatest escape of the Great War is, is not only the sort of cleverness of the tunnel, but the, the amount of forethought and planning uh, and effort that went into how they're going to make this 150 mile run to the border. One of them was planned on dressing up as a businessman and taking a train the whole distance. Others had mapped out a particular route that they could travel by night and, and hunker down by day. And I think probably my favorite, my favorite story and the sort of the heroes of these stories, uh, David Gray and his partners, Cecil Blaine and Casper Kennard, decide the most ingenious plan, which was, you know, to, every time I think about it, I, I kind of chuckle to myself. But Gray and Blaine would be disguised as orderlies from an insane asylum. And Kennard would be acting like an escaped lunatic. And if they were stopped by, you know, a local policeman or German officers, Kennard would go into sort of apoplectic fit. And Gray, and who spoke German fluently along with five other languages, would tell the officers what the deal was. And uh, typically, they found that people wanted to usher them out of town as quickly as possible. Right, right. I mean, what was, I thought was really fascinating. Not only they had like a workshop uh, and they had like this system for the tunnel, but they created workshops for tailoring clothes, disguising. They had workshops to you know, make forged documents, photos, et cetera. And they did this again, not knowing exactly what they were doing. And they did this without getting caught. Yeah. I mean, they had, again, this escape university. So you have experts in, in all these different fields. And one of the sort of most important ones was a man named Dick Cash, who was this Australian enlisted soldier. He was in his mid-40s. He had all his teeth had been knocked out when he'd been blown sky high uh, on the front. Uh, but he was a photographer and he smuggled in supplies to provide not only uh, photos of the officers for forged documents, but most importantly, um, duplicates of maps that they needed to, to make the run to the border. And so all these, these players were essential. 
And this couldn't have happened if the Germans hadn't placed all these sort of experts into one place. Right, like I said, it backfired on them. <laughs> it time. did. I mean, so how long did, did the the whole plan take from, okay, we're going to dig this tunnel to we're escape, until they escaped? How, what was the time frame there? About six months. Six months. That's a long time. They thought that's a long time to keep a secret. It's a long time. Uh, they thought they'd be out by Christmas. They started in basically, uh, you know, November. They thought they'd be out by Christmas. But the fact was they put the extra guard there and then they ran into trouble along the way. They, the tunnel reached a, a sort of a wall of stones that they couldn't get through for a long time. And then there were times when their entrance that they used to, to reach the tunnel was shut down. They couldn't use it anymore. So they needed to find another way to actually reach the tunnel that they then they did dig from. So there was lots of back and forth, lots of near moments where it was the tunnel was discovered but they eventually in july of 1918 made the break and how many officers escaped that night so you had the you you had 29 men actually made it out of the tunnel over that night before it collapsed on some of the officers while they were trying to make their ways through the those officers were eventually pulled by their heels out of the tunnel but niemeyer discovered it that morning of the 29 10 made it to Holland and freedom. And they were created as heroes in, in, in England. The king visited them, honored them, and their escapades were splashed across the news because it was, you know, it was kind of a triumph against very great odds that played very well in a, in a moment that was very dark in the war. Yeah, I like the one of the guys. He's the one that disguised himself as a businessman uh, and took the trains all the way to Holland. He, he, as soon as he got there, he wrote yes. a telegram, sent a telegram to Neumeyer. was like, hey, I'm in Holland. If I ever see you, I'm going to break your neck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and that was uh, Colonel Rathborn. I mean, he was... Uh, he was uh, quite a quite a character, as there were many of these people. Right, and the assailant asylum guys that that ruse worked for them. That absolutely worked. I mean, they you know they were almost captured in one town, and and Kennard went into a fit, and they fed him a a, a fake a fake drug, which was basically aspirin. Uh, and he calmed down, and they just wanted to get him out of there as quickly as possible. They barely made it across the border and were shot at as they ran off, but uh, they made it. Did uh, all these guys go back to the battle after they escaped? Yes, they all, uh, they were they were essentially brought back to England and said, you know, take a little time off. And the majority of them uh, went back and, and rejoined. The, the majority of them went back and rejoined the RFC or, or their units, but the war was almost in its, in its last lengths at that point. Yeah, and shortly after that, I was talking about like these guys was like they set the example of how to do a POW escape. Like how did how did the British military and you can also say I mean I imagine the German military learned from this experience, Americans learned from this. How did they codify what these guys did on the fly? So once these once these even during the war, these prisoners would would you know if they escaped, if they were brought back. They they wrote testimonies of, of what life was like. And if they escaped, they wrote testimonies of how they escaped. And many of them, them wrote sort of memoirs that they never published. And then you find that, that World War II comes along and the, the British start this service called MI9, which I mentioned before, the escape and evasion service. They decide that, you know, a lot of people were taken prisoner in World War I. Few of them escaped. Uh, what can we do about it? 
And the officers who were put in charge of, of, of starting MI9 said, well, we need to talk to the experts. And the experts were the, the people from World War One, and, and many of them were the Holtzmann escapees. And so they went to them and, and these men, particularly William Bennett, the naval observer, became a professor, you know, a sort of secret professor going from airbase to airbase, giving a slide lecture, teaching pilots and, and soldiers and, and naval uh, officers and, and, so, and men what to do if they were found themselves captured. And it, and it ended up helping quite a few of them escape, some famously in, in The Great Escape and in Colditz, but uh, thousands of others who you've never heard of who got back to their families because of Holtzman and what these men did. I'm curious, as you were researching and writing about these escape artists, did you take away any life lessons? Like, was there something about these guys that inspired you? And you're like, I, I should have, I should try to develop that sort of attribute that they, these guys manifested with this experience. Well, I think, you know, I mean, my takeaways were, were first this idea of like, you know, what is, what is freedom? I mean, these, these officers were in a place where, okay, they were in some ways had it pretty, pretty nice. They had people making them tea in the morning and, and, and polishing their boots. But the fact that they had no control of their lives, no control of their schedule, what they ate, who they slept, where they slept, called sort of caused what Harvey, the poet said, was a kind of moldiness, which was ruining their soul. And this idea of, of, of what is freedom, what is essential to in humanity was something that is sort of carried away, particularly Harvey's insights into that. And I think the other one that that was key to this story and, and sort of one that I took away was the idea of camaraderie. David Gray, the father of the tunnel, tried to escape multiple times and essentially given up until he found himself at Holtzman and, and decided that he needed to depend on other people. He needed to depend on his friends to make it out and to make it through. And those are the ones that got him through the darkest hours. And, and uh, he never would have escaped, nor would the others if they hadn't done it uh, together. I love that. Well, Neil, is there some place people can go to learn more about the book? I think there is. They could go to uh, the Amazon, their local bookstore. They could go to my website, Neil Bascom, N-E-A-L-B-A-S-C-O-M-B.com. Well, Neil Bascom, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Great to be back. My guest today is Neil Bascom. He's the author of the book, The Escape Artist. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about Neil's work at neilbascom.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash escape artist, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoyed the show, you've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. Text them a link to the show. Send them an email. Bring it up in conversation. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Manly.